0: Mike Lussiter here from Farm Equipment and No-Till Farmer magazines. Thanks for tuning in for How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs, sponsored by Osmondson Manufacturing. Today's conversation is with Steve Sukup of Sukup Manufacturing, a 600-person manufacturing company he leads in Sheffield, Iowa, with brother Charles. Sukup Manufacturing was founded by Steve and Charles' father, the late Eugene, and mother Mary Sukup in 1963 just nine years after the farm couple was wed. Eugene's intuition led to a single innovation that would streamline grain handling and grain quality as the industry was quickly moving into shelled corn storage. From meager beginnings, the late Eugene, wife, and sons would create a giant in the grain sector.
1: Then in 2000, after we had hit the market so well with the portable dryers, we just felt like we had to control our own destiny with going into the grain bins, and so Another engineer and I went down to one of the roll-forming companies and started pricing out or seeing what we could do for making sidewalls and roofs. And so in 2001, we started came out with our first bins, and so we got into the bin market. Yeah, everybody says, what, what are you doing? There's been so many bin companies out there, but when there's a need, you jump on it right away. 2005, five miles north of here, we established a signature site of our commercial bins. There's four half-million bushel bins at that site. Two million. Worth of storage, and we put on some of our very first conveyors there. So, we got into material handling with the conveyors and bucket elevators, and catwalks and towers, and so grabbed onto the material handling aspect. So, between the, the dryers, the grain bins, uh, material handling, we wanted to have the whole package for our customers.
0: That's Steve Sukup talking about their bold decision to move into the crowded grain bin business control their destiny as a full source of grain handling and storage. We met with Steve at their headquarters in tiny Sheffield, Iowa, whose facilities are approaching one million square foot under roof, and they boast one of the finest offices I've seen, a showpiece for their building talents as well. We met Steve in his second story boardroom on a rainy fall day in Sheffield, the kind of weather that's good for the grain drying business. And while I regret not completing this interview before Eugene's death a few months earlier, I am personally excited that you'll still be able to hear Eugene and Mary's voice together on a special bonus recording in this episode that was spliced together based on videos that the Sukup team had the foresight to collect. So let's go, our How We Did It Conversations podcast with Steve at Sucup Manufacturing. I feel like your name has been around my whole life because my my dad used to run the magazine Farm Building News. And oh,
2: okay, sure. Rural builders, so. rural
0: builders. Yeah, we've we used to hang up on
1: the old office building all on our old paneling <laughs> yeah. walls the nice plaques
0: that yeah. uh, rural builders always sent out. So, right, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah he, Roy Ryman, who I'm sure you know from oh, Iowa State, I just, founded it. And then my okay. dad had worked for him and then ended up buying it. So, yeah,
1: I was, I was uh, seeing the name. i been involved in the business almost since uh, day one. When I was in sixth grade, I could weld and run a torch. So when Dad came up with his first idea with the stirring machine, we are actually over in a little weld shop across town here about you know, a mile away. But uh, Dad started the business in 1963, and then we moved over to this site in 1970. And actually when I was a freshman in high school, I helped run some of the concrete for this facility, so yeah.
0: And you were sixth grade, and you knew how to use a weld torch?
1: Weld torch, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I did the, uh, I got Brazil out with the torch for a sixth grade project, yeah. so. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, who taught you? Oh, actually, it was one of our guys out in the shop, and his grandson actually works for us now. So I uh, might uh, look up Bob out there, but his uh, grandfather's the one that actually uh, taught me how to run a torch. And then uh, one of our other... Dad's second employee was a welder, and so uh, Dave taught me the welding.
0: What do they remember about your welding skills?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I worked summers here welding uh, product. After that, or when I was in uh, college and such, so I enjoyed uh, first. You know, ran with the stick welders, the seventy fourteens or whatever, and then you know we had the mig welders out out there through my college days and now they've got the computer controlled ones that they just click everything on for frequencies and uh, different metals and so it's really just in welding to see how things have advanced.
0: So it was 63? When yes, uh, dad, dad came went. up
1: with the idea with doing some stirring or his version of the stirring machine and uh, brought it to a weld shop, made augers, wound the flighting onto shafts and we had to climb in the car, my brother and I, Charles, we're the second generation, uh, both involved in the business and We'd go to the state. At that time, state fairs was the primary ag focus at that time, so we'd hit the Iowa State Fair and the Illinois State Fair and go out to Nebraska and Minneapolis and so do the road trips in the 60s.
0: What did your dad, Eugene, see at the time that that allowed this this invention to flourish? There was a trend going on with, with shelled corn?
1: Well, it was one uh, we always had the corn cribs, and I grew up with corn cribs, and... Dad was deathly allergic to uh, bee stings. And so there was always wasp nests in the, the corn cribs with the you know, ear corn. Because I remember my grandpa you know, picking the ear corn and then put them in the corn cribs. And then when we'd sell it, you'd have to rake the corn, corn out of the corn cribs. And there was always a wasp nest somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I was in there climbing away. And then they, they came to the shellers then, the corn. But then with corn, you have to dry it down. And the steel bins came out. That was with you know the butler days and Stormore days. And actually, early 60s, Dad bought a stormor bin, and you put some heat in the bin. But sort of like a pot of beans on the stove, if you heat up the bottom, the top's still cold unless you stir it. And so that's what the stirring machine does: was mix the grain up so it would dry evenly and quicker.
0: So at that time,
1: there wasn't anything like it. There was two companies: ours and a stirator, and so Dad took off and ran with the stirring machine.
0: In that early model you needed a power cord?
1: Yeah uh, the very early ones he just had an auger on a a drill and obviously even back then everybody wants wanted something a little bit more mechanical than just dragging that up to the top of the bin and at the time he thought of well why don't he put an auger through the handle of a drill and have it move back and forth and so that was basically his idea on uh, coming up with the first stirring machine.
0: Your parents were, were farmers? Yes. Yep. Did he dream of getting into this life that, that followed? He
1: enjoyed farming, but I think you know he, he sensed he enjoyed making a product, and so I think he decided to chase it down the path, and there's always some hills and valleys and uh, roller coasters along the way, but he was a very persistent individual, so that he stayed with it.
0: So, the founding of the company really would have been what year? Uh,
1: 1963, Yeah. so it was my dad and my mom, who occasionally comes into the, the business, dad passed away in July, and then my brother and I, and so we were the the four original shareholders.
0: That was out at the original Weld Shop at at the farm.
1: And then we moved out to this location in 1970. Built a 25,000 square foot metal building and chief building, and so we got started out here.
0: For those who maybe didn't get a chance to meet your father, how would you describe
1: him? Very energetic. He just loved the product that he was making and selling, and so he was just full bore on. He was always uh, game on and pushed the product hard and great relationship with customers and vendors. So,
0: How did you go to market in those early days? How did you go from uh, invention to getting it out there? And well, introduced. that's when we
1: started working with the different bin companies. At that time, there was Modern Farm Systems in Webster City and Chief Industries out in Grand Island, Nebraska, Boffman-Oster out in uh, Illinois. And then there was Butler down in Kansas City. So those were the primary four. And then there were some other ones scattered about. There was a long manufacturing out of Davenport. So there's all sorts of uh, little bin companies that uh, along the way and some larger ones and so, so they had established dealers throughout the ag industry and so you'd sort of look up uh, the dealers, see if they didn't wanna add the stirring machine to the products that they were handling at the time.
0: Was it challenging in those early days of a market shift toward? shelled corn and was it a rising path?
1: Oh at that time it was a rising path that in-bin drying systems are what was taking off that everybody realized that just putting a fan on a heater doesn't solve their problems of drying the grain that they needed a more efficient way and an easier way to keep the grain mixed together and dried evenly because you'd have the hot and cold spots and spoilage on the sidewalls of the bin if you you know with all the condensation one of the old slides we used to have is, uh, shows a 30,000-bushel bin, which is around 30-foot or so. In order to take uh, the corn from 25% moisture down to 15, you have to take 10,000 gallons of water out of that bin. And so that's why I always say you saw steam coming out through the top of the bins because you were having to vaporize the water and uh, get it out there. And, you know, 10,000 gallons is a lot. If you don't get that moisture out, it's going to spoil or freeze or have some other bad effect on the corn.
0: So if you were kind of encapsulating a timeline about key moments in your history, obviously starting with 63, I'm sure that moving out here in 70 was part of that. What what else would come to mind?
1: Well, one of the others, early 70s, dad came up with a four way to unload grain from the very bottom of the bin, still the in-bin drying. And then uh, came up with the airways that go along the sidewalls of the bin to take care of that uh, spoilage on the sidewalls when uh, water accumulates on the sidewalls or freezes and so we had that product and then after that we in the late mid-70s 1976 or so we got into the fans centrifugal fans and vein axle fans and uh, charles worked quite a bit with the fans and airflows on the centrifugal fans and then you know 1980 was good busy year 83 that was the pick in the drought year and so i remember that year quite well i came back from, uh, graduated from Iowa State in 1979 in industrial engineering. So I've always liked the metal fabrication and production aspects of it. And then the mid eighties, dad and I went out and bought two grain bin floor lines, roll forming grain floors, the perforated floors. And then we uh, bought a hot cut line. And so we bought those two lines in the mid eighties. And uh, so we sort of ran with the fans, the heaters, the floors. Uh, The power sweeps for unloading the grain. Uh, We really established ours as the leader in the power sweeps for getting nice high capacity grain flow out of the grain bins when they are ready to take it to market. And so that was sort of the establishment. And actually up through uh, the 90s, that was sort of our core business. We were still selling to all the uh, grain bin companies. I think at one time there was like 20 different grain bin companies just through the eras of all the names you could run to and so that's who we tried to market to. 1998 is when 12 row, 16 row, 24 row planters were starting to hit. Bigger combines, more combines for our customers and they were going away, they had gone to the portable dryer side instead of just drying everything in bin. In bin it was more like 300 bushels an hour whereas portable dryers was more like 2,000 bushels an hour And, and farming you like speed and get it done. And so in 1998, uh, one of the engineers and I went out, John Hanning, and so we started looking at, you know, portable dryers. One that we said there, I, you know, said that, hey, we've got to find something different. Portable dryers have been out there a long time, but there's something that we got to be able to figure out that we can do different and better. And uh, so John and I are bantering around, and uh, John says, well, hey, there's what they call metering rolls on the dryers, but you're taking the grain from the same point. And we've known from our grain drying, even though you might have a 14-inch column on a portable dryer, you have a heated chamber, then you blow the hot air through the 14 inches of grain flowing down through the portable dryer, that the inside is still hotter than the outside. So we came up with putting uh, metering rolls for both the inside and outside, and running the inside one faster because that's the drier grain. And when we went to the trade shows, people just looked at it and go, hmm you are right mm-hmm. and so we got a patent on the quad metering rolls and set ourselves apart then from there through the years with the moisture sensing and that's what matt cook our electrical engineer and part of the third generation uh, came up with the uh, quad touch controls the touch screens the fiber cords that we can uh, run any distance with for controlling it and now you grab your cell phone and you can call up the dryer mm-hmm. and see what's going on so we've really taken from 1998 to now that you know, you're know controlling it with your cell phone. So uh, the dryer aspects have been a, a great uh, production run and uh, we keep adding on. Matt got the uh, UL listings done on the uh, dryers and so it's uh, in the power boxes. So that's been a great accomplishment. Then in 2000, after we had hit the market so well with the portable dryers, we just felt like we had to control our own destiny with uh, going into the grain bins. And so another engineer and I went down to one of the roll-forming companies and started uh, pricing out or seeing what we could do for making sidewalls and roofs. And so in, uh, in 2001, we started, came out with our first bins. And so we got into the bin market. Yeah, everybody says, what, what are you doing? There's been so many bin companies out there. But this was uh, right. It's the start of the ethanol industry. And I've been just one of the firm believers that ethanol is fabulous for having the U.S. having our own uh, energy program. I mean, when you can have a cornfield, an ethanol plant, and a Yukon XL and fill it up with E85, we don't have to go to the Middle East for uh, gasoline. And so or you don't have to go through Alaska or some other place. Ethanol is the perfect fit for uh energy and independence. And so that's where the, the grain bins. And then in 2003 uh, sold the first tier to Rockwell. I'd worked with the Rockwell co-op and uh, sold I sold them our first half million bushel bin in 2003. So we had a long-term, as they say, a long-term plan uh, going into commercial bins. But when there's a need, you uh, jump on it right away. So within a couple of years, we had our uh, commercial bins going. And so that uh, took off well. And then in 2005, five miles north of here, we established a signature site of our commercial bins. There's four half-million bushel bins at that site, two million bushels worth of storage, and we put on some of our very first conveyors there, so we got into material handling with the conveyors and bucket elevators and catwalks and towers, and so grabbed onto the material handling aspects, so between the, the dryers, the grain bins, uh, material handling, we wanted to have the whole package for our customers. Uh, customers don't want somebody pointing fingers, well it's their fault or somebody else's fault, uh, they really did want, okay, come up with the whole package, put together what we need and uh, look you in the eye and say mm-hmm. you, you know, you'll make it work, and so we can do that.
0: Hi, Frank Lester here. We'll get back to the podcast in a moment. A fun one for me personally, as we closely followed the work of Dad Eugene and Sons Charles and Steve since the 1970s when I was running Rural Builder Magazine and the National Rural Builder Show. Sukup was a near-perennial winner of our annual Gold Key Supplier Awards, as voted on by our subscribers. Anyway, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about No-Till Farmer, which includes a newsletter, magazine, podcast, and video series, as well as the annual National No-Tillage Conference, which we've held each January since 1993. See us at www.notillfarmer.com. And now back to my son, Mike, and his interview with second-generation co-owner, Steve Sukup. Looking back, when was that? identified that, that you saw the opportunity to, like you said, close the loop, control your destiny, have a yeah. whole full solution. When did that start to come into focus? Well, it was that the
1: 98. Uh, we really had great success with getting into the grain dryers or the portable dryers that set us apart. And then in 2000, I, it was sort of the year that, hey, we got to seize our opportunity, uh, control our destiny. One of those years, uh, uh, one of the grain bin companies was our biggest customer but also our biggest competitor. Mm-hmm. That combination generally doesn't uh, last very, yeah, <laughs> last <right>. very long. <laughs> right. Somebody pulls the trigger yeah. and it uh, was one that, so that's when I went down to the roll forming company and said, what's it going to take to get us into this market? Mm-hmm. So. And then the ethanol aspect of it just converted agriculture from uh, like here, when you harvest your crop, is just okay. When's it going to be hauled over to the river with the ethanol market? It said okay within this thirty-mile radius, this plant's going to need grain every day, hmm. and so that sort of established that uh, the on-the-farm market uh, storage was going to really uh, make that happen. So that's and we've got our uh, grain bins on probably twenty different ethanol plant sites just for the commercial side of it, plus. All the storage that they need year-round, because mm-hmm. generally they only have maybe 30 days worth of storage.
0: That was big development at the time. What do, you, what do you remember from that point where you guys were stepping into a much bigger environment than you had been? And what do you remember about that era? Well, it was one. We had a great dealer organization set up by that time, or a
1: long-time established one. And so, as we then expanded our products, it was like they were going to have to decide whether they're going to stay with their established company, or which they all of them had experience with us on our product lines. But they had to make a lot of switches over to our grain bins. But we brought them in. We got their. We actually went through and got their thoughts on what they liked about grain bins, what they'd like to see differently, and so we designed around uh, what they wanted and thought. Like I say, the ethanol industry just gave it some steroids to say, hey, we got some some things are changing out here in the ag sector.
0: That was kind of prior to ethanol coming into focus. Yeah. Right?
1: No, we, uh, I mean, it was one, it goes back to we just need to control our destiny. So we just had to go out on our own and uh, get it accomplished and we hung on to it. Mm-hmm. So we had a great great sales group. Uh, Charles worked a lot with the sales and Diane Hughes and so put together the the package that way and and that's been the other key our dealers have grown with us Uh, that's the other aspect of it It wasn't finding you know the new dealer that could pull all the sales in most of the time using our established dealer base that grew and expanded with us because since 1998 we've grown at eight times larger 80 percent of the products we're making now we weren't making back then so it wasn't just that oh this product really exploded and we were able to keep making more of them we had to go out and Figure out how we're going to do uh, portable dryers and make all the different options for the customers. How we're going to do grain bins and commercial grain bins, the material handling, and you said that you, you've grown eight times since '98. And 80% of the products we're making now, we weren't making then. So mm. it's been product development that we've seized, grabbed some opportunities, and said, "Hey, we need to be in this market." Which is a marketer. When we say be in that market, it's a demand from our customers, I says, hey, you know, I'm buying steel buildings, so Mm -hmm. why don't you get into it? I'm buying conveyors and bucket elevators. Saw the opportunity and uh, seized upon it. Around 2010, I started buying up uh, structural steel equipment to make steel buildings that Mm. uh, had always felt that was going to be a part of our, we like rolling steel, like welding steel, like selling finished steel, and it just was going to fit nicely into our uh, product mix. And again, a third of our dealers had had some experience primarily wood buildings, but then when we came out with the steel building line, they they said, hey, that customer has your grain bins out there. He wants that uh, 80 by 120 foot uh, machinery shed there, a Sukup building too. They get aligned with whether they're red tractors or uh, green tractors or whatever. They like consistency in their uh, Mm -hmm. farming.
0: That time that you went into the bins, was that considered a, a risky move?
1: Yeah, everybody's asking, well, you know, what are you, what are you doing that for? I mean, there's been lots of bin companies out there. As always, you know, I think, well, we got enough bins already for the storage, as was the general feeling. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, we just needed the complete package to say, uh, because whenever we tried to sell a product, I mean, the bin, it was the first thing everybody asked for. And then they say, well, what do you need for this? Or like buying the car, you buy the, the Ford or the Chevy, but then you get all the other added options onto it, and uh, the grain bin's always the first thing they asked for, and so we want to be
0: have our name on the first product they asked for, and then we'll go from there. One of the videos I was watching, and your father was talking about how very different you were by coming up with a single accessory and coming this way into the rest of the process where the others may have started with the bin ben. and worked, the, worked back the other way.
1: Yeah, that's that's how we did it. It is through all those years, everybody asked for the grain bin first though, so the products we made were excellent. Our fans had the highest air flows, our grain bin floors. We actually, when we bought the two different lines, combined the supports and the floors differently than what the previous companies had done and made it. we made a very successful uh, combination out of taking the best uh, points of both of those units. Uh, the power sweeps are still a great system for getting, loading the semis up in 10, 12 minutes and getting them on the road again. With, but the the grain bins and the portable dryers was what gave us the exponential growth. I might ask you a little bit about Eugene before. What? Tell me about your, your mother. Oh, uh, she was just role. always very supportive of it. You know, back in the early days, she'd make the lunches when we'd have sales and service schools here and bring people in with all the different dealerships. Uh, back in the day, we'd have like 10 days of sales and service schools, and each uh, grain bin company would have their particular day <laughs> to come mm-hmm. in because none of the dealers wanted to mix with the other Competing uh, dealerships and things like that, and uh, so mom would uh, was very supportive and uh, would travel all over and, uh, like I say, uh, uh, take care of any wives that came along or cook the cook the meals mm-hmm. and stuff. So yeah, yeah. Sounds like
0: from some of the other videos I, I watched, she was very much involved in the business and her yeah, opinion did mattered. all the booking, yeah, mattered, yeah, yeah. mattered the booking. a great deal. Yeah. What did they think that this company could turn into when they first went out and? Form at suka manufacturing, put it, their name again. So, what did they? What was their dream for what it could become?
1: Oh, I guess just making farming more efficient. I guess that's with the early days with the strain machine and drying the grain. Uh, that was an absolute need. So, I think that's what uh, they focused on. So, and so that was you know we handled all the accessory products and uh, but grabbing onto the portable dryers and grain bins again is what got us established in all the markets. And that used to be the short answer. Somebody asked, do you make grain bins? You know, 30 years ago, you could either give them the long answer that we make everything but the grain bin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you yeah. say, yeah, yeah, we're grain. <laughs> but it was the grain bins that really drove the stake in the ground for uh, whether on the existing farms or now the commercial markets, a great piece of our business. Uh, we've sold our commercial equipment to the five largest grain exporting companies in the U.S. And so we've Getting, we're established as uh, commercial now, so that's been a nice accomplishment.
0: When the four of you got together, did you think you would have this size, this influence, this name in the international business today? That was always one of my
1: dreams is that we could just really put the name out there. Uh, we grew up with you know, Butler being the the name in the mm-hmm. industry in the grain drying storage uh, group, and then they'd sold out I don't know, 25 years ago, 20, 20 years ago. And then that, I, I think, sort of cracked the door and said, hey, we can put our stamp on the industry. And, uh, you know, from day one, when somebody calls into Suka, or now, they're asking for an individual, whether it's Steve or Charles or John or Carrie or Matt or Diane, they're asking for a specific individual. We hate the rotary systems or the systems. Well, punch this button for department here, department two. Mm. So, anyway, and maintain that close uh, customer relationships. All of us, you know, Charles and I, and there's uh, Matt, Emily, and Andy in the business, the third generations, but uh, we'll have dealers call up and had uh, a dealer call up, doesn't tell who he is and hear him and go, oh, hi, Ed. And so, yeah. I mean, and, and all of us uh, know our customers like that or our dealers. And we go to all the trade shows where it's the ag trade shows and we spend our days there and make sure we understand what the industry's doing because the industry did shift you know, in the late 90s from in-bin drying to the portable dryer, they needed that speed. And we were still selling the in-bin systems, but we needed to transform to what, where they wanted to go. And so that was the sense that, hey, we gotta start doing something different out there. And uh, so that way, and then also with the manufacturing equipment, uh, enjoy going to the trade shows for those, for the manufacturing so that we can become more efficient. We brought our first robot in oh, a little over 20 years ago but we've uh, tripled our employment since we've brought in the first robot. So when they, with the robotics, as long as you're being more efficient, you're gonna create your opportunities to develop into more markets and, and sell more. You can become more efficient and put out a high quality product that you can keep growing.
0: Before we get back to the Sukup story, a quick word about our sponsor, Osmondson Manufacturing. Another family business success story from the great state of Iowa, Osmondson's history dates all the way back to 1903. Visit them at www.osmondson.com. Now, back to more with Steve Sukup and his family story from Sheffield, Iowa. Question I, I wanted to ask you is, we're a small family business, started by yeah. my parents, but as we've grown and gotten more people in, I like to go back to the, some of those stories of the grit, perseverance, do you have stories like that that you tell this younger generation to, to understand what the Sukup world was like back in those early years? Well, I
1: think the one story I think is that the first five machines dad made, Charles actually tells this story, I I sort of cringe at it. (laughs) (laughs) The first five machines, uh, I think three of them were brought back and the other two they never heard from again. So anyway, it was like, but that was perseverance that dad just was going to say, hey, we have to have stirring for him been drying. I'm going to make this thing uh, work. And so he would persevere there. Uh, We had some... uh, uh, good good years are growing years I mentioned that you know the one that sort of strikes me I came back from college in 1979 industrial engineering and you know things are good and busy with things and land prices are growing up and agriculture was going strong and then 1983 the the pick year and the drought hit and just face planted was uh, mid-80s no matter what you did or no blood was coming out of that turnip mm-hmm. so anyway it was uh, mid-80s so that that's what sort of you always go back to okay that that was real hard reality check. We came through fine, but it was uh, tough years. And then in the the 90s, uh, we had some growth, but it was one of those uh, we're having to figure out what our product mix should be. So, but it was good. My my folks, we we traveled with them. Uh, we tried to do exports. We traveled Mexico or uh, Europe, or you know, just seeing what other markets are doing. So that was, that was the thing. I think that. I sort of feel I like picked up from my dad. My dad could walk through a plant and feel what was going on, and that's sort of what I enjoy. You can walk through the plant and feel what's working, what's not, or go on a trade show of okay, what's what's sort of the excitement here? Where's everybody headed to? And that's that's one of those uh, sensory items my dad had, and uh, you know, feel I sort of was able to get some of that DNA to sense the same things. And uh, or, you know, walking in a room of knowing who your customers are and how to take care of them.
0: So you graduated in '79, came right into the business. Yes, and had all confluence of everything that could go bad was right after <laughs> the, that. Mid, the mid '80s, yeah, yeah, the mid '80s. It was like, yeah. whoa, <laughs> what are what are we doing here? Yeah. How did you, you, your brother, your parents get through that when a lot of a lot of others didn't? What what was it? Execution was it?
1: Oh, it was. Capital structure. Dad, well, Dad always ran a frugal company, so I mean, he ran it pretty uh, tight. We didn't that time didn't have to make any bankers happy. At that time, you know, in the early 80s, the land had gone, at that time, 3000 know, three to $4,000 an acre, and then it all came back to 1200 again, mm-hmm. and uh, you really had to cut back hours and just go back to the nitty-gritty to mm-hmm. uh, get the get the product out and just work that much hard at selling, and uh, and so we made it through that downward uh, roller coaster, and then the 80s and 90s started working its way, way back, so we could... Get our products all reestablished again and uh, maintain our good dealers. Sort of related question, I guess.
0: What you and your brother are doing with this company, and you've heard the phrase like you give someone your playbook, but they couldn't execute it the yeah. same way, right? Okay, F- right. football analogy. So, what what is it about your playbook that only you can execute? Well, I think it's the personal relationships. I mean. As I mentioned,
1: whether it's Charles and I, or Emily, Matt, and Andy, the third generation, if we interact with our uh, dealers and our customers, Matt will give you a plant tour, I'll be out a little bit with it, but I think you can sense that we're engaged with them, uh, with the employees, most of them are at six hundred employees two two years ago. I knew everybody's name. I'd guarantee you that I could go out and <laughs> tell you. Now we have bumped up another two hundred, and that's a little a little tougher. But uh, enjoys saying, "Hey, Yolanda, how's it going?" Or "Ray, how's the dryer line going today?" Or go down to Joni in the electronics room and say, "How how the power panels are doing?" So you can look them in the eye and know that they that if there is something of an issue, you can take care of it and. All five of us are powered to do it. If something comes up, yeah. we'll we'll take care of it or the customer calls and says, "Hey, I need this." And so, okay, moves up on the prior, or you know, we're gonna make sure get them an answer to what what we can get done mm-hmm. for them. So I, I think that's and you know, like I said, mentioned on the telephone systems, it's one of those. we're available. If we're in the office, we'll take the call right this minute, and if not, we're gonna get back to you. So was it when 400 you could
0: do it? But yeah. 600, yeah, 600 starts putting you at your. <laughs> that's yeah,
1: that 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 list a lot of a lot of good people, dedicated people, and we're trying to keep that same atmosphere. But uh, it's one of those out of the five of us, we, mm-hmm. and we enjoy that. That's uh, that's what makes it through. Like hopefully you get the same sense on the plant tours. Uh, one time I had somebody out on plant tour, and we were about halfway halfway through or 45 minutes into it, and he goes, I've had enough, I've seen it, (laughs) but I don't know how to get back, so you need to take me back. Somebody else says, you enjoy the plant tours way too much, (laughs) which I do, I enjoy going out there and again, sensing what's what's working, what's not. Matt might show you a bender that the start of the year was taking five different bends to get a completed part now one hit of this press and we get a finished part after every stroke of the press and so that's uh, that was when I, Andy works, uh, Andy Schmidt, uh, third generation, he married to Emily my daughter and uh, Andy t- works with me a lot on tool and die and the ma- maintenance aspects and machinery and the equipment and Emily's our uh, general counsel and so works a lot with HR and some of the financials and keeping things all coordinated that way and then Matt works with electrical engineering and the programming on the dryers and works a lot with the sales aspect, and so we've got a good good balanced uh, team going.
0: You'd mentioned the employees in the HR. You have some really interesting programs here that you're doing to support your employees. Well,
1: yeah, I was one of those. uh, I'm one of those that somebody asks a question if they can do something, unless it's earth-shattering or with things, I'll say, sure. And Emily said, hey, we're paying lots of money for health insurance. Health insurance Health care is the primary, you know, everybody, we all want good health care. We want it accessible and affordable and uh, make it happen. And Emily says, you know, I think we need a medical uh, clinic on site. And it was like, you said, go, okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's gonna be a lot of work. And so Emily dove into it, worked, interviewed hospitals, Different groups. You had all the regulations of how a clinic had to be set up. But in our old office building, they've completely remodeled it, and uh, we have our own uh, medical clinic on site, and it's been very well received. Because a couple of things that else that set us apart: we've always paid 100% of our employees' health insurance premium, and uh, so we've always valued health insurance or knew it was important to everybody. So they knew we always we took it seriously. And then when we opened the clinic, it's really been a nice. Uh, Addition that they have accessibility affordable uh, health insurance, and so emily it's worked out well with having that uh, staff on site and uh, they're looking you know keep expanding a little bit more out in the community and stuff, but it's been a a great great success that way in house mm-hmm. I know they've got uh, different lab rooms, exam rooms, and such uh, I think it's around uh, you know probably four thousand square feet so it's uh, nice size and our old office has never looked better <laughs> mm-hmm. <You're right. laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, how long have you been doing that program I uh, just uh, I think it'll be like a year now oh. but it's been uh, well received and uh, working well so meeting our goals of uh, providing the health care for our employees and uh, others and their spouses and dependents yeah. and things like that that's some very progressive yeah. thinking there yeah uh, yeah right. I mean because healthcare is a major portion of that, Mm -hmm. the bills we pay. And plus, you know, keeping good people, that's the other aspect. Mm -hmm. So when we moved out of the old office building, uh, we built a new office building here uh, four years ago. Uh, We moved in in 2014 in July. Uh, We were able to do a lot of it. There's one of those, uh, you always have a little trepidation about building a new office building, that whether you're overreaching or what the perception is and everything, but uh, when we got into steel buildings, we bought the structural steel equipment and roll forming equipment and so uh, we made the 800,000 pounds of uh, structural steel that's in this office building on site. I'll go down to the mm-hmm. tech center and show you some of that uh, structural steel or throughout the building here. The roof is the standing seam roof uh, on our, is what we manufactured ourselves. All the steel panels around the building is our design and our fabrication and some of the items inside the office mm-hmm. building is uh, made here. So it's one that we can bring our customers in We did a lot of the work ourselves, so we made it efficiently, and yet they can still see, hey, these guys, if I'm going to build a steel building, these guys know how to do it. So so it was one of those that we could really show off our product.
0: For our listeners who can't see what we see here, if you could describe them what they see and then give us a bit of a, a virtual plant tour, in your words, what they will see here. Okay.
1: Well, a little bit on the mention when we first came out to this site, we built a 25,000 square foot metal building. Uh, We currently have uh, 650,000 square feet, uh, 15 acres under roof of steel buildings. Uh, The last 200,000 square foot has been uh, built in the last uh, six years, and it's our own steel buildings so that we get to show off again the products that we make. And so when you look at the steel building, the sides, the roofs, the rafters, the purlings, sidewall sheets, uh, all made by us, everything but the lights and the insulations from somebody else. You'll see the newest equipment. We've got 20 welding robot systems, uh, 10 laser systems, CNC, Lays and machining centers, and benders. And uh, The other thing is our operators all do their own programming. That's one of those. We have a nice, a good great programming system here that uh, we we've always felt the operator should know their equipment the best and how to make the part most efficiently and uh, so they do all their own uh, programming and as i walk through a plant but i want to see product moving as long as the products moving we're accomplishing our our goals and uh, you know we'll keep taking a look how we can be more efficient we used to have a part that took 5 bends and now it takes 1 bend to complete every part they're going you know, still like okay there's a better way to do it. So the manufacturing we really focused on, we've got a great team, plant manager John Swanson and Dave O'Connor and uh, Nadine Riggett and then Andy and I uh, work with them on new manufacturing how we can do things better. Then when we tackled the office building, Emily really latched on that one. We wanted to show off our product and so the standing seam roof, you'll see a copper standing seam roof. There's sort of like two wings, rectangle wings to our office building with a center round portion. And then we have a 50,000 square foot uh, tech center there that we can show off our products inside. And you can see the big structural steel rafters on the inside. And so it's one that, uh, yeah, we take great pride in. Uh, We've enjoyed, we wanted to make sort of a signature site here in Sheffield. And as I also say, we didn't uh, build the new office building uh, for resale value here. So we are invested here in (laughs) Sheffield. (laughs) It it wasn't, oh, we can flip this. No, it's one of those, we're here, Enjoy working here, coming and working with a great group with our sales and engineering groups and production management and uh, you also notice that we're uh, connected from the office building physically with a corridor to the manufacturing plant. And that was one uh, one of the original companies, uh, motor companies, uh, that's how they did did their office building and I always thought, oh, that's, that's neat because you want the office and plant to be integrated, it's not them and us, it's like how can we do this all, all together
0: to make a good product so when you bring visitors through and, and so they see 600 employees and 15 acres under roof and you lead them through what are the things that they tend to share that really amaze them by the time they're done with the tour it-
1: well like for uh, first on customers they always come through or that first they say yeah i went through a plant tour a couple of years ago I'm, I'm good and which we enjoy showing <laughs> giving them plant tours and then they go through the plant tour man, there's always something different out there that you're doing. They always see something that, hey, that strikes them that that you're being very efficient and quality product and just trying to always up our game. I've had, uh, I'm on the Iowa Motor Truck uh, Board Association, so the director, uh, came through and then it was very sort of nice and also for Iowa though so I'm on the uh, the Supreme Court nominating committee and so stay in contact with the Chief Justice of the, the Iowa Supreme Court and he wanted to come up and visit on another project that they had going on with uh, uh, some things and so I took both of them separate times through a plant tour and at both times afterwards got a note back it is just amazing the interaction that you know you have in a relationship that with the employees and everybody working together there that this is what's something special about you guys and you know we travel a lot in the state but uh, you guys are one of those special ones that can uh, maintain that relationship with your employees and that's the work that we do with our customers as well we love
0: taking care of them dave Kanicki here editor and publisher of ag equipment intelligence while we've got your attention on this fascinating sukup story We wanted to let you know where you can find more exclusive content from Steve Sukup available on our all new website www.agequipmentintelligence.com We just loaded a quick hit video interview where you can hear directly from Steve about his view of steel tariffs and their impact on our industry. Tune into www.agequipmentintelligence.com for this timely perspective From a manufacturer who is close to both farming and politics, including eight years as a state congressman. I was going to ask you about your uh, political career and how
1: (laughs) how that came together. Tell me about that. I've always enjoyed politics. I was on the, we'll have to go back and see what grade I was, uh, 1964, the Goldwater Johnson. Election was 1964 and rode the bus. And uh, uh, part of our route was uh, Doherty, which is our hometown, but it's 90% Irish Catholic. And so their views and my views were uh, different. And so we had the the banter back and forth. So I remember that in uh, fourth grade, fifth grade. And so anyway, so I've always enjoyed politics and then uh, when I was in high school as well as when Charles was uh, we were pages in the legislature two years apart but so I enjoyed being part of that and we're never afraid to just make a choice and say hey let's go with it uh, when Senator Grassley back in I think 1973 ran for Congress or something like that 74 74 ran for Congress uh, we got involved in the primary at that time when he was in Congress. And so 1994, got the itch and ran for the legislature. And so spent eight years in the uh, Iowa legislature, uh, floor managed uh, a lot of bills, uh, was on the Judiciary Committee, the Business Committee, uh, Appropriations Committee. And so uh, enjoyed that. And then uh, the last two years, I was Speaker Pro Tem of the Iowa House. Yeah. And uh, so got to run the gavel uh, quite a bit. And uh, Enjoyed, and we made nice accomplishments, whether it was tax policy or uh, workplace issues, uh, economic issues, and so really made some uh, nice changes, uh, thought, and fa- some accomplishments. So enjoyed that, and then, then I took the bite and ran for governor in 2002, and ran in a primary, three-way primary, and I finished uh, second, two points behind the venture winner. So, mm-hmm. and so that was the deal, and I was worried I might miss politics, but. Uh, uh, maybe once a year, and that's, that's enough for yeah. me. to <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I enjoyed it, and uh, that was, yeah, 16 years ago, but uh, stay in touch with a few people, so mm-hmm. I, I still like it. The process just gets harder and harder like we're seeing right now, whether in you know, Washington, D.C., and one time I thought I might like to do Washington, D.C., but now it's like, oh, man, mm-hmm. to have to go through that would be yeah. brutal. So that's one political pitch here. I think term limits is the only thing that can solve the problem. You have, everybody thinks they can be there forever. And unless they know that that's terminal, they won't sometimes make what's the best decisions. Mm -hmm. It'll be what, without term limits, you're a short term company just trying to get reelected in two years or six years with term limits would say, hey, we're going to have a long term approach. You know, you're not going to be here forever whether it's 6, 12, or 18 years, but at some point
0: it, you need to go home. So that's my pitch there, yep.
1: term limits. Yep.
0: So you you were able to bring a, a good influence, agriculture, family business, metal fabrication, the, yeah. whole, the whole thing.
1: And so. engineering, so yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Tell me about what you see today for, for ethanol.
1: It's a great energy source, one that we can uh, easily get added into the, the gasoline system, as in all energy efficiencies or energy... You know, there's not necessarily a perfect answer all the way. I, you know, I believe there needs to be some wind and solar, but ethanol needs to be a part of our uh, energy for fueling our cars, makes our country more energy uh, self-sufficient. It adds a great boost to the gasoline. And I, you know, I think it's always going to be part of the market. And again, I say when you can have a cornfield and an ethanol plant and a Yukon or one of the other uh, ethanol-friendly uh, vehicles out there, we can keep running. We don't have to worry about everybody else. So it's one that, I, you know, I think we are in a, uh, probably a mature industry. Uh, there's not a lot of the new plants being built like there was. We've sort of had, we're at that plateau. Uh, but as long as we provide ourselves as a uh, fuel-efficient uh, energy provider, a green provider, I mean, it's, oh, uh, when we are in China, they have to do something different. They, You know, you, you go there and they... Uh, everybody's in mass uh, the people I mean it, they have their days and you know some of the industrial cities you know what is it 200, 250 days they're in has alerts and things like that so I can see ethanol making a play into China just giving them the cleaner fuel to to burn and it's a higher octane so that's where it's go it's a great octane source for the gasoline uh, companies to up the octane and uh, so I'm so confident in it, and uh, they've got become more energy efficient. We're making DDGs out of it. We're getting corn oil out of the distillation uh, process. So we're utilizing all aspects of it. There's just very little waste. You know, some CO2 that might, is the only thing out of the process that we still need to figure out. But otherwise, we're using 90% of the, the product going through.
0: So you still feel reasonably yeah. optimistic, yeah. bullish for yeah. it? But.
1: Yeah. Well, I might uh, when I, I might touch on our safety homes. Uh, we made the safety homes, and uh, again, it's one of those that our safety manager, uh, Brett Nelson, had always wanted to mill, build a grain bin house. And you know, it was one of those. Who said, oh, grain bin house! I, I, lo- I love building grain bins, but I'm not sure I'd want to <laughs> live in one. And uh, so, he, Brent always had this idea. And then in uh, 2010, they had the earthquake in Haiti, where all the concrete buildings fell down people, you know, they had thousands of people killed in the concrete buildings. They basically got scared of being in concrete buildings, and uh, Brent comes up like the next week to me out in the plant and says, hey, I think we can build some emergency shelters uh, uh, for those folks down in Haiti. We saw all the blue tarp uh, villages out there that everybody had moved out to, and he says, I think we can build a build them a grain bin and I says well as long as it's an 18-footer which is sort of our smallest standard size grain bin let's try and make something standard out of it and so brent and one of our engineers brad poppin ran with it and uh, came up with a double roof system because all of us have put up grain bins go boy that's gonna be hot but we have a a double roof on our systems that allows airflow through ventilation we'll set it up at the farm progress show and uh, inside the safety home will be 12 degrees cooler than outside they're down in the tropics, so if it's 92 outside, it's going to be 80 inside, which is warm, but it sure, sure beats 92 mm-hmm. to outside. And so it's really been a great addition, taking your expertise in helping people. We've got 400 of them uh, worldwide, providing them uh, shelter. And uh, this last year, that last hurricane, went o- the eye of the storm, 140-mile-an-hour winds, went right over one of our villages with the safety homes. They had 50 people in one of them. Shook the house for six hours, and everybody comes out safe. It is saving lives mm-hmm. out there. A good one. My son Nick's been down there twelve times, putting them up and helping people. Uh, Emily's been, and Andy went down this last year with yeah. some folks and put some up. And I was there two years ago, and so it's one of those trips that you go, wow. Mm-hmm. It, it's making a difference. Yeah. So that's you, you feel good for what all what we came up with here. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that I, I didn't, I did not know about that until recently. It, yeah.
1: yeah, no, and uh, and it's one that has been a hit with the church groups because when you know missionaries from Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin go down, you want to do something. I mean, that's you know yeah. our, that's the Midwest work. I want to do something, and uh, uh, so the safety homes have been a great, uh, great item that you can go build some while you're done, or they try and sometimes uh, pattern it because you can build one in a day with about eight to ten people. So. Some assembly required. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Is it accurate that, say, you're the world's largest family-owned manufacturer in this segment? Yes. Hopefully,
1: the opportunity will present us that we can keep expanding. I mean, this last year ago... Uh, we purchased a uh, steel building company out in Pittsburgh 100 employees out there
0: is that SBC was that-
1: yes it was SBC okay. and now Sukup Steel Structures but they've gone up and down so steel building uh, industry seems to be more of a regionalized manufacturing business and so it gave us an opportunity to go out to the east coast i mean it they've been doing well they've gotten the market right now is good and busy and so it as always it takes you a little bit longer to get things ramped back up the way you'd like to have them done, but they're, they're doing a great job right now. And so we're running with that. So I think there's still some items in the steel building industry we can keep growing our business on. And so I think that's one of them. And the commercial market for the agriculture, uh, we've done more, uh, starting to get on some of the seaports and things like that of the big projects. And so there's still some opportunities. Mm-hmm.
0: Would you entertain getting into other areas of agriculture or ag equipment that are not just grain related?
1: Yeah, we'd, we'd take a look. It's, it'd have to be a little bit of a match. We tried some tillage before and it's amazing. Just there's a complete difference between the tillage dealers and the grain drying dealers and other dealers out there. And so hopefully we occasionally learn from things we'd be pretty targeted on what industry we mm-hmm. go into. But uh, there's still still some out there that I think would have some opportunities. Marlis Drills was sort of the original one that we tried. Marlis Drills down in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And we're still down in Jonesboro. we got a nice facility down there. But just the drill overall market was was really a roller coaster as well. And uh, so we'd be a little bit more selective next time or what industry. And like I say, it was just a lot more different personality that market than what uh, our grain drain was, mm-hmm. which is surprising. It was surprises, but that was...
0: That was the case. Mm -hmm. What was different about it between the two?
1: Oh, just the the marketing, the the pricing. We weren't gonna be able to get a big enough presence in it, I think, is that they wanna stay with the established lines out there. And then you have the tractor companies versus the short line companies. And we were definitely in the short line companies Mm -hmm. bracket. And so you're just fighting each other down here and you got the three major tractor companies up here that gonna control the market what sits on their dealers' Mm -hmm. lots. So that was, yeah. That's and a, we and we weren't, gonna, we weren't we weren't we weren't going to get past that one with grain bins. We could make the end around on that one and get that one done. Knew we could get that done, but you know, obviously, with the tractor companies, you're not going to make that happen. Mm. So,
0: and it's um, must be tough getting the attention of the dealer salespeople if right. they have but 20 they, brands in there, right? And they get, you
1: know, are they going to spend their time selling a twenty thousand dollar drill or a three hundred thousand dollar tractor mm-hmm. and combine? We know what direction you're going with.
0: What's the next generation lining up to look like?
1: With uh, Emily, Matt, and Andy, you know, they're trying to take everything's, when you control dryers on phones now, it's sort of like, okay, what what information, what do we need to provide uh, physical equipment to our customers, but what information, what data, what better information can we get to our customers that they can make better decisions, whether it's marketing or harvesting or... uh, planting so anyway it's so they're taking a look at that so it's one there's opportunities there's still some more export opportunities in the last six years we've uh, we have a manufacturing in the ukraine and we have a large distribution center in denmark so we've sort of pushed our footprint out a little bit farther but uh, obviously there's other areas of the world that we need to take a look for agriculture uh, more we've always done a little bit with south america but not A lot, Far East, we've always done some, but uh, not as much as uh, maybe we need to. And so they'll need to keep their passports current and trying to see how our customers, how we can provide them with better information for them to make decisions.
0: So they were were fortunate enough to know the founder. Yeah, yeah. there was one of the videos that I was watching of your, of your dad talking, and the interviewer, he must have asked what was your biggest challenge or something to that degree, and he, he said yeah, there uh, hasn't been one
1: yet. We haven't had, I, I guess you'll say, a showstopper, just that, uh, you know, I go back to that, 1983 might have been as close to when just the market stopped for a while, but uh, and there wasn't grain. when You had half the crop and half the price. That, that was a, a tough time, and then our customers you know, the ag crisis in the mid-80s. So that that was probably the closest time, but uh, at the same same point, we didn't have to make anybody else happy. We did all the belt tightening that we needed to do and was able to survive it. So there there hasn't been uh, one we need to be aware of it. So it's always like, okay, you know, when things are going good, you think they'll last forever. And when they're bad, you think they, they won't end. But so you need to always keep a perspective, okay, if this is what's working. What do we need to be worried about? And that's probably what our third generation is probably doing a better job of saying. Okay, what do we need to make sure we get covered in this area, or uh, if this happens, what do we do?
0: I was I was struck by the answer because I know that this
1: is a company with great faith. Faith was very important. Whenever we traveled, we we visited a lot of a lot of different churches wherever we were at. And so uh, Sunday we were in church and uh, faith was very important, the number one thing with him. So yeah, no doubt about that. And uh, we were reliant that uh, somebody else always had a, he knew who had the better answer, had the final answer. And so just one of those to keep working hard and uh, had that strong faith. So whether it was this or something else, something, some door was gonna open.
0: And now for a special bonus. Especially specially sliced audio of founder Eugene Sukup, who died in July 2018 at the age of 89. Thanks to the forward thinking of his employees, a series of videos captured the founders' stories and voices for posterity. In the next few minutes, you'll hear directly from Eugene in his own voice, along with wife and founding partner, Mary, as well as Charles, Steve's older brother.
2: It really goes back to uh, 50 years ago we were named outstanding Franklin County farmers. Without the hogs that we raised
3: on the farm, the manufacturing company would have probably never been born.
2: We were at the right place at the right time.
3: He was one of the first of the, first of the neighborhood, actually, that started bringing shell corn
2: in from the field. And we got a bin, put corn in it, and wow! We couldn't get it dry on top.
3: So he got a little stoker auger from the little town of Ardale over here. There was a blacksmith there and put it into the drill. And he carried the drill up to the top.
2: Well, you get up there with a scoop shovel and that just doesn't work to move corn on the top of a bin. But this auger worked out good.
3: He was excited about that because it did break up this top part.
2: So oh, I, like most farmers, to think they're the smartest guys out there and they're going to come up with an idea. Well, uh, I decided to make these augers and we made a, must have made about a hundred of those little rascals. I took five of them down to Stockdale's.
3: We had purchased our men from Stockdale, so they, they were nice and purchased some augers.
2: Went back there about a month later and he said, well, I've sold three of them. One guy's brought his back, the other guy said he's never going to carry that thing up to the top of the bin with an electric cord again and the other one we never did hear from.
3: They said, oh you've got to automate this, this one and the farmers just aren't going to drag this up to the top of the bin.
2: But I came home and uh, one next morning or two I came up with the idea of putting an auger through the handle of that drill.
3: You know, this was something we really had never thought about before because if we raised a bushel of corn, there was a market for it. You, could, you maybe didn't like the price, but you could take your bushel of corn and sell it someplace in the area. But when you have a product, you have to have a buyer.
2: We uh, knew that we had something there because the auger worked so well, dried his grain uh, the way it was, It mixed it, and we uh, came up with about 14% moisture in the bin and he was able to sell his grain.
3: And so from that, he uh, devised the first stirway. When we got into this and, and toted that first short auger out to the Illinois State Fair, uh, we couldn't have begun to, uh, <laughs> to even have any, have any idea of how this would grow.
1: and uh, We're very different and unique from all the uh, other bin companies. They typically have started with making the bin and then the accessories like the fans or the floors or the uh, unloading equipment was all an accessory. We had to survive on our accessories, the stirring machine, the fans and heaters, the floors and loading equipment being the very best. And so when we culminated with uh, providing
2: grain bins, we had the strongest one-stop package of anybody in the business. The industry said, well, what do you wanna get into grain bins for? There's so many there now, look how many have disappeared. This is a dying business out there. They've built every bin that's gonna be needed through the years. We were building all these accessories for these companies. But as they went along, they started building them themselves. They were squeezing us out. We had no choice to, but to take a look at building our own grain bin.
3: You just have to be the most proud of relationships with the people you work with and and uh, your customers. That has to be the pride of the whole thing. As a grandmother, of course, I'm... I'm proud you know of my family and as a wife i know what eugene did and uh, so i'm proud of that
0: thanks to joe kinsley for his talents in stringing multiple recordings together for you in today's podcast to hear and to watch more of sukup's early story directly from the mouths of eugene and mary visit www.sukup.com slash videos. And thanks once again to Osmondson Manufacturing for supporting our time, travel, and production for these recordings. You can find them at www.osmondson.com. Thanks for joining us today. Till next time, I'm Mike Lester of Farm Equipment and No-Till Farmer signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs.